the culture of the company is probably as important to your success as the product itself. And the most important thing, I mean, you can tell people what your values are, but the most important thing is to establish an atmosphere of trust and an atmosphere of sharing and an atmosphere where people feel that they can come in and talk to you and relate what's going on and be and be completely open and 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 truthful about things. The 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 other thing that helps in this business is really making sure that the uh, employees and consultants know that what you really care about is is the patients and their outcomes. And it's it's just a, it's it's just a daily process. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Teddy Roosevelt said to get action. Neil Eigler says, get traction. If you ever struggle with networking or getting your company off the ground, this episode is especially for you. Neil has an amazing career with over 40 years of experience in biomedical research. Since 1988, he has led early-stage medical device companies. Some of these include Angioplasty Systems and Connor Med Systems. He was also the co-director of Cardiac Catheterization Lab at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles for almost 20 years. Today, he serves as the CEO and founder of V-Wave Limited. They are developing easier and safer implant treatments for patients with severe heart conditions. He is a giant in his field with so many stories to share and so much advice to give. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Neil. Thanks for joining me this morning. It's my pleasure to be here, Christine. I'm so excited uh, to talk to you today. And you definitely have a lot of experience in the medical devices. You've been around the block for quite a while. And I always I would love to hear your perspective, how the industry changed. But before we go there, um, maybe it would be helpful for uh, our listener to know what your background, the journey that you took to get to where you are today. Sure. Well, it it has been a journey of several decades at least. Um, uh, I was originally uh, trained in cybernetic engineering undergrad at UCLA and uh, had a wonderful opportunity to go to medical school uh, back east uh, at Yale, uh, which really got me uh, started on a uh, research and academic uh, track. And from there, went on to um, do uh, internship residency and a fellowship in cardiology out here on the West Coast at Cedar sinai Medical Center, where I really got introduced um, to some of the, the giants in the area of uh, uh, invasive uh, and interventional cardiology, uh, particularly uh, doctors Jeremy Swan and Willie Gans who invented the famous uh, catheter and um, did the academic thing for uh, a a couple of decades, uh, 
became a professor, wrote a lot of papers, got a lot of grants. Uh, but that engineering bug in me uh, really started uh, to take over uh, in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, really began to develop an interest in seeing that some of the ideas that we had could uh, be translated from the, a napkin, basically, at lunchtime uh, in, in, into something that was real and at least testable and eventually testable in humans. So went on uh, to uh, start, um, really start, start some device companies. And uh, that journey has now gone through, uh, I'm on my fourth uh, medical device uh, startup that I've either been a, a founder or a, a principal uh, uh, person in it. And uh, happy to say that the first three all ended up with uh, nice exits for the investors. So they were all happy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this fourth one is uh, really kind of a, a love affair for me. And um, it's it, the great things about, about this is while you're doing it, you never want it to end. Your investors may want it to end uh, at some point, And they're usually the ones who will... Uh, tell you enough is enough sell the darn thing and uh, <laughs> you know and hopefully you don't have seller's remorse at, at the end of the day it's your baby you know you, you know you don't know if your baby is ready to go necessarily or not but but that's sort of the overall journey that I've had and I've I've now been in the medical device industry for more than 30 years yeah and that was a, it's interesting you mentioned about you starting with the the drawing a concept in a napkin. And I feel like those are many of the people use that word quite a bit, you know, decades ago. I feel like now people don't use it. Anymore. It literally happened in three of, of the startups that I've been right. part of. Yeah. Now I just feel like now it's like the, the world of medical devices has changed quite a bit. Uh, it's uh, um, many of the investment need to happen much further along than it, before. I feel like, you know, even the internet is like, oh, it's just a drawing and a concept and, you know, people throw money, especially in the tech side, but de definitely less so in the medical devices because uh, the investor understand the, the risks and the journey, how long it takes uh, in order to get a return. Yeah, I, I, I think that the kind of devices that I do, which are usually implantable devices, they're called class three devices when it comes to the, to the regulators. If you look at the length of the journey uh, to get approval by FDA, uh, for example, uh, and, and how much it costs these days for a class three device, we're talking at least a decade. In some cases, 15 to 20 years. And we're talking about re total investments to get to that point, somewhere in the range of 150 to $250 million. Now, clearly, you don't start with that. You start small and you check off milestones and, and mm -hmm. you retire risks. But, um, but, but that's what's required. And, and, uh, uh, and all in all, it's it's a pretty good process. Okay, it 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 ensures that you've done enough d 
development, enough testing, uh, and, and, and that you're not only you're confident, but that others um, who will be adopting the technology will have the level of confidence in, in the data that you've generated that you can actually figure out where it might go in, in relationship to when you're thinking about treating patients. That's, mm-hmm. that's critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that you're right. I think one thing's about the healthcare, their process is there for a reason. And because we are dealing with human life, you cannot just like, uh, why don't you restart the button on your computer <laughs> to maybe that will work this time. In the um, old days, you could build these things in your garage, okay? Right. That, that doesn't happen anymore. So speaking of which, I think maybe that would be a good segue for us to uh, for you to share with us what you, how you see how the industry has changed uh, since you've been in the industry for many, many decades. Well, I think um, on on the development side of, for products, the the number of steps and checks and balances and risk analyses and um, uh, the entire a, a bureaucracy of development has just mushroomed over over the last three decades. Um, whereas before you could get something into early human testing with just a little bit of bench work, a little bit of preclinical animal studies, uh, I, the requirements are, are much more stringent uh, today. The process of dealing with the regulatory agencies uh, has kind of reversed in an interesting way. A couple of decades ago, very easy uh, or much easier, much less data needed to be generated to get a product approved in Europe to get a CE more. Uh, and, and the FDA was a much higher bar. Um, now, the, the Europe has almost reversed this and everybody's trying to figure out what the new set of rules called MDR is in Europe. I mean, n- nobody can tell you. Nobody really knows. And it's a, it's kind of a, um, a maze that, that, that one has to negotiate. The FDA has become a much more collaborative uh, entity than it used to be. They really like to work uh, with you early. They like to have their finger on the pulse of potential uh, medical breakthroughs, whether it's in the device area or in in the pharmaceutical uh, or biologics uh, uh, or diagnostics uh, area. And um, it's it's pretty easy to get good feedback from them and to work in lockstep with them so that you're both going toward a common goal. It's become a much more enjoyable process to work Mm -hmm. with the FDA in the last decade in particular. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, push within the FDA trying to be, I think with a lot of it is with patients in mind because I think they they realize uh, innovation is also needed in order to serve many of the patients. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies 
lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. On the other side of the coin is the investment side and, and how that has uh, uh, changed. And uh, whereas in the early 90s, venture capital was pretty straightforward, uh, around 2000, it became very, very difficult uh, to be able to uh, secure um, the, the, uh, the kinds of funding that you needed to, especially in early stage. Uh, uh, companies or where there weren't a lot of other companies competing. But what I found was that uh, in the last decade or so, I I think that there's been some rewriting of the ship in venture capital. Uh, The the number of players has uh, increased the ability to go to family offices and and hedge funds and uh, other things like that for investment beyond the traditional VCs has uh, really uh, opened uh, this up. Also, international uh, uh, venture capital, I think, is um, it, it has been more reasonable uh, to get in the last decade. So can you tell us more the difference between like how they interact with us? startup medical devices, be it a hedge fund family office versus international ventures? I, I find they kind of all work about the same. It's, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's important that you uh, create the, the data sets that uh, these people can come in and do due diligence on and that, and that you have the ability to form uh, relationships with the with, with the potential investors, and that you're able to nurture those relationships, and that you're able to develop um, an atmosphere of, uh, of 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 mutual values and trust, uh, uh, etc. So that I, and, and whether you're trying to do this with a family office or you're trying to do this with per, perhaps even a strategic investor like a big medical device uh, a company uh, or, uh, or or a traditional uh, uh, healthcare venture venture capitalist the the process is really the same um, however what's interesting is that the amount of work one needs to do to get that first million dollars of investment Versus coming go, going out there later for a hundred million dollars worth of investment in something later on is about the same. Okay, <laughs> so so um, you're always doing that. The other thing is it's clear about this is you're always teaching people. Okay, mm-hmm. you're teaching them again and again and again and making sure that they understand what it is you're trying to do. And why you have to do it in a certain way, okay? And the same thing goes on in, in running a company. You're always training. You're always retraining and 
making sure that the mess your message is understood. You constantly have to keep thinking about your messaging to make sure that they understand what you're trying to do and this is the right way to do it uh, per your plan. But do you think uh, the you know the risk profile from each of different this investor are different, and as a result, they might want a different thing as a result of that. Well, there's certainly um, differences in early stage investors versus later stage investors. So. Um, uh, the, the the early stage investors come in on an A or a B round uh, uh, typically, and um, that's before you often before you have human data, even human feasibility data, and um, but but the the amount that they're risking is is typically you know a lot a lot smaller. Um, some some folks are just only comfortable in investing once you have a lot of data. And, and you know, that comfort zone, you, you, you need to go to these people when you need a lot of money and you have a lot of data, okay? But when your needs are different and, 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 the, um, and, the, and you haven't de-risked everything yet, um, there, there are venture firms that, that 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 will take those risks, and we're 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 aligned with several, you know, really good ones right now who came in, uh, really on the basis of only uh, very early human data, and and we're willing to write uh, big checks. So, uh, it it kind of just depends on the flavor of the uh, of of the VC, and they're all over the place. Okay. And you just got to find out who's interested in, in, in our case, in, in implantable cardiovascular devices, um, uh, who, and, and they will assess, you know, if they think it's a, a potentially big market and you've got a chance, they'll, they'll invest at, at, at an earlier stage where you have, uh, you know, uh, less de-risking that's, that's occurred. But you know, for a small for a smaller market on something that may have a fair amount of risk to patients and this and that, people are, tend to be more conservative. It's, mm-hmm. it's fairly appropriate, but the the um, spectrum of investors is as wide as can be, and and and. And you, by networking and talking to a lot of people, and you can you can figure your way out through this investment. It's not rocket science, okay? It's if if you learn a few kind of basic principles, uh, and and you have the ability to um, state your case and back it up, yeah, you can get traction usually. Mm-hmm. And what are those basic principles? Basic principles. I, I mean, for a for a startup company, <laughs> there's there there's obviously what what is that product? Um, can it be built? Can it be tested? What's the potential unmet need for such a product? Um, and what's the potential for future reimbursement of such a product? 
And what's your team like? Okay. What's, what's the track record of the people that you put together to be able to uh, take you on this journey? Uh, is it an experienced team? Is it a bunch of dreamers who've never done this before, uh, et cetera? It's, it, it's, it's really nuts and bolts kind of logical stuff. Okay. So idea, IP, team, and potential market, I think. That's great. So, I mean, definitely that is a must that you have to have. I think the other, there's one other piece, which is just as important. Okay. Are you going to help people with what you do? Okay. Are you really focused on the right customer? Okay. And, and the thing about medicine is the customer is the patient. Okay. It really is the patient. You, if, if you're not a hundred percent focused on making something better for people and you're just focused on this as a way to, um, get an exit for your shareholders, Mm -hmm. you will fail. I really believe you will fail. Because you will get that reputation and the next one you'd have to do and the next one you have to do, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. And so why are we in this business? What, you could, I could have gone into tech. I could have gone into uh, something that had nothing to do with patient care. It's because that's, the, that's where my focus is. That's where mm-hmm. I grew up in that. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make something better if at all possible. Yeah, no, that's great. Now that's, I think many of us who are interested in healthcare because of that reason, and it's a not an easy uh, space to, to navigate, as you said, you know, 10 years or more <laughs> to the journey is long. Um, so going back to, you know, you've done this, this is your fourth rodeo. And I'm sure you you learn every you know somebody was asking me what is a common mistake people do and uh, uh, I always said that mistake everybody has to make a mistakes you know no, nobody goes through life without making mistakes but what do you learn from all your journeys um, that you leverage from each of the journey that you have that for that you apply to what you're having today? Very simple stuff. Uh, in, in, in general, um, God gave us two ears and one mouth, and that means mm-hmm. we probably should be listening at least twice as long as we do speak. Um, many of us grew up in individual research careers where, where we were... Uh, a, a one-person band, if if you will, and and learn to do as much as we could ourselves, and didn't want to be dependent on others. In 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 a uh, startup company, it's all about teamwork. It's and and therefore it's all about communication, and not only using your IQ but your EQ. You, you have to uh, apply a certain amount of your emotional 
uh, intelligence to be able to work with people uh, in a way where everybody gets to uh, roll up their sleeves and perform up to the to the levels of their uh, capability. It's very important to look what other people are doing in the industry, how they're solving problems, how they're being funded uh, and, 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 and network that way. Because if you can, it's always better to learn from the mistakes of others than your own. Now, you will, you will be making, I make mistakes every day and sometimes they're, they're Lulu's right? And the people that work for us will make their mistakes every day. So one of the key things that I've learned over the years is if you see something where the result is not what you would like, um, uh, don't try to explain it away as some random chance thing. If you see it twice, it's critical to stop what you're doing and to do a root cause analysis. And that will save you more grief and aggravation down the road if you pay attention early on and 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 learn no device i i i've never experienced a device that came out of a box on day 1 that didn't require some major modification or more going forward uh, as you were developing it uh to assure uh patient safety procedure success uh or or effectiveness or efficacy of the device it, it, oh it's not working in everybody oh what can i learn from the non-responders okay let's do a responder analysis let's try to understand who's a responder who's a non-responder uh etc so it's really about paying attention as the data starts to come in and keeping your hands on it, staying very close to the data and instilling in the people that work for you this same kind of ethic about mm -hmm. bad news is okay. Mm -hmm. Let's, but let's not keep it from each other. Let's share it and try to figure it out. I think that's a, and culture and environment that is really important, especially when you're developing product that is touching a patient and how do you ensure that is, how do you lead, I mean, how do you make sure that is the culture that you have in an organization, especially as the organization grow bigger and bigger? Well, I, I think it's important that you are always cultivating the culture, that's kind of using two, two of the words that mean the same thing in the, in the same sentence. But, um, but it's, it's, it's the culture of the company is probably as important to your success as the product itself. And the most important thing, I mean, you can tell people what your values are, 
But the most important thing is to establish an atmosphere of trust and an atmosphere of sharing and an atmosphere where people feel that they can come in and talk to you and relate what's going on and be and be completely open and 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 truthful about things. The 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 other thing that helps in this business is really making sure that the uh, employees and consultants know that what you really care about is is the patients and their outcomes. And it's it's just a, it's it's just a daily process. Yeah, yes, you can have various experts come in and help you with your culture, okay? And we, we, we've done that. We do that, okay? Nobody knows how to do it, you know, intuitively, yeah, perfectly. But it is something we really pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. No, I think trust is such a key to build that um, culture that you want to well, set it's up. it's not only the trust with the people in the company, okay? You've got to develop mm-hmm. trust with the investors and you've got to develop trust with the regulators and with the payers and with the um, uh, clinician community. So so there are all of these constituents that you need to pay a lot of attention to and to, 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 to find out what it is that they're concerned about, really. And, and, and see if you can uh, at, at least have a, a, a straightforward approach to that. Yeah, I mean, recently, uh, I mean, I, I've been listening quite a bit uh, from we're talking to a lot of the entrepreneurs. And this is definitely an area that they definitely say how important it is. And one thing that, you know, people use the word trust a lot. But recently, I hear from somebody, Brene Brown, who's talking about the seven element of trust that I thought was really interesting and I thought was really good. And so see, frame it in a way, trust, um, the seven element of trust is braving. Uh, my son said, like, that's not even a word, mom, but it's braving, like B-R-A-V-I-N-G. And the, so the seven element of trust is boundary, reliability, accountability, a vault, um, integrity, non-judgmental, and generosity. I thought that summarized it pretty well. I was like, oh, okay. Non-judgmental means that you can ask for feedback and give feedback without being judged. And the vault is to not share other people's story just to gain somebody's to be on your side. That's not relevant to you. But I thought that was really a good element of trust because, you know, when people think about trust, like, what does that mean? So I forgot to uh, ask you to describe briefly about your company, what you're developing and why you're passionate about it. You know, as you said, it's your love affair, your love affair. Sure, sure. So a couple decades ago, as as an interventional cardiologist, a couple of decades ago, we were primarily involved in doing interventions on the coronary arteries, on, on, on treating patients that have blockages or narrowings in their arteries who would en- end up in, uh, getting bypass surgery. And around that time, I started getting interested in uh, patients that had more end-stage uh, uh, heart disease that we call heart failure, 
and and the reason was because as the population ages, a higher and higher percentage of people have it. And now we're talking about 6 million people in the United States that have heart failure and probably 70 million or more around the world. And it starts to rob people of their independence um, in their 50s and 60s and 70s when they could still be very, very active and, and, and productive. And a lot of heart failure is treated pharmacologically, but there was starting to be some device ideas about it. And one of the ideas is, 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 is this, that the reason people end up deteriorating, going into the hospital uh, and, and, and possibly dying is that as the heart becomes weaker, the pressures in the heart become elevated and they kind of back up into the lungs and you get fluid in your lungs, you develop congestion, pulmonary congestion, you can't breathe and you end up acutely in the hospital. And uh, then you, you start getting into a repetitive cycle of, of these kinds of things. Yeah, maybe we can bail you out in the hospital and you go home and all that, but you're going to be back 50-50 chance you'll be back in the hospital within six months. So it was a huge problem. And one of the approaches to this is how do we keep the pressures in the heart uh, modulated so that this kind of pulmonary congestion doesn't occur? So the Israelis actually came up with this idea of creating a hole in the heart between the two upper chambers, between the two atria, and basically kind of recreating a congenital heart defect. But it has to be a Goldilocks defect. It can't be too big because it will overload one side of the heart. It can't be too small because then it can't decompress the other side of the heart. It has to be just right. And they had an idea for this, and it was the time was right in my life where I was kind of completing what was going on with another uh, uh, company, and I went over and did some due diligence on them, and literally their data was on napkins, okay? <laughs> uh, pieces of paper all over the place, but I saw that there were some interesting signals that were kind of pointed in a, in a beneficial uh, direction. And became interested in in in, in this company and um, helped bring them some uh, investors and 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 became the CEO of it. So that what the product does, it's a, it's an implantable device that kind of looks like an hourglass in its shape, both the inside and the outside, and it it sits on the um, the dividing wall or septum between the two upper chambers, and it decompresses the pressure on the left side of the heart and helps prevent a pulmonary congestion. And we've now taken this um, from early uh, human feasibility all the way into what's called a pivotal trial, where we're doing a, a large size clinical trial in uh, up to 120 uh, hospitals in 11 countries, and going through the process where you have to get the uh, a, 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 a classic double-blind, randomized, controlled trial. So uh, very high-class uh, uh, data, best the best kind of data available to be able to analyze these things and, uh, you know, get long-term follow-up uh, on the patients to see 
what they've done. So one wants to, you know, at the end of the day, be able to say, look, I can put this device in people. Lots of people can put it in because uh, it's straightforward to do the implant procedure through a catheter. Uh, the patients tolerate it, seems to be safe. Um, and uh, ultimately, the the benefit to risk for the patients is going to be uh, uh, favorable. All things yet to be fully determined, but again, once again, we have lots of signals now that appear to be pointing in a favorable uh, direction. And what does that do? It allows you to go out there, keep the uh, capital flowing for investment because you can't sell the device till it's approved by regulators and 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 until your colleagues in, in medicine say, yeah, this seems like it's something reasonable that that adoption is going to be there. So that's that's what we're doing right now. The company is called B-Wave and uh, it's kind of co-located between Israel and Southern California. And, uh, you know, COVID, of course, uh, has been thrown on top of this clinical trial and it does make doing the trial much more difficult. Hospitals don't want to do this kind of research, you know, during COVID and does it affect potentially the results and all that? So, you know, stay tuned, as they say. Yeah, yeah. uh, Hopefully things are slowly back to normal, uh, whichever that normal is. And I feel like things are more opening up than the new normal. But at least I feel like at least in this country, things are opening up and um, hope things are going back. And I, uh, so thank you for sharing with us your journey, uh, your insight and the good work that you're doing. Um, I'm looking forward uh, to see the product in a market that then helps so many patients. Thank you. Well, I, I think we got uh, a couple of years before that that happens. So we plan to have a good time along the, the rest of the way getting there. So thank you again, Christine. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.